We're great to be with you this morning. We're going to kick off a new series. But before we do, let me pray for us one more time. Lord Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for this opportunity to gather here as your people. And Lord, you got something you want to say. Lord, we need a special measure of your grace, God, as we um, think about the recent decision, God, that we have made and the discernment of your Holy Spirit and uh, the pursuit, God, that we are making, God, to um, take what has been entrusted to us, God, and be as faithful with it as we can be. And I just pray that you would guide us through this next stage of the journey, that we would walk in the fullness of your Holy Spirit as spiritual men and women seeking you, humble before you, submitted to your will, submitted to your scripture. Pray that you would show us the way that we might walk in it. And I pray that this next series would help us, God, to walk faithfully and well, to have appropriate expectations, uh, God, as we seek to build something for you. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to be talking about rebuilding the wall. What book am I about to preach, y'all? Nehemiah, thank you. How many times has Nehemiah been preached in this church that you remember? You don't remember? Okay. All right, well, good. I'm glad. Because it's kind of cliche that when a church is on the cusp of something big and new, the preacher always preaches through Nehemiah. Well, I'm doing it, and um, I was flipping through the the book, and it just seemed so relevant that I just, like, I cannot pass up the opportunity to preach through the book of Nehemiah because there are so many lessons, I think, that will be applicable for us as we walk through this journey. And Nehemiah is a tough book. Nehemiah was a tough dude. Um, and so, you know, there are going to be calls and challenges here for us to do hard things. And that's okay because nothing in life worth doing is easy. And so if we're going to, if we're going to do something for God, why do we all only expect it should be easy? And so we're going to have to do some hard things. We're going to have to have some hard conversations. We're going to have to do the hard work of thinking critically and deeply about the future, about the scripture, about what God wants us to do. The theme for this series is captured in one word, and that is rebuilding. Rebuilding. And I think it captures what we're trying to do, right? We have something built. It's good. But even the best structures eventually wear out and need renovation. And I think in, the, in Nehemiah, we have a great example of, of Nehemiah uh, seeing the walls and seeing that they needed rebuilt and him taking it upon himself to say, I'm going to be the one to see that it's rebuilt. And so I pray that through this series, God would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what the Spirit speaks to the churches. Um, So we are in the book of Nehemiah, um, and we're going to read from Nehemiah chapter 1. So um, if you haven't already, please turn there. But Nehemiah chapter 1, and I'm just going to go ahead and invite you to stand if you're able and willing. To kick it off here, we're just going to read... We're just going to read verses 1 through 4 to begin with, okay? Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. It says, The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, 
as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The word of God may be seated. We're going to see two things this morning from the book of Nehemiah. Number one, rebuilding begins with brokenness over our present state. Rebuilding begins with brokenness over our present state. And number two, rebuilding rests upon God's power, access through prayer. Rebuilding rests upon God's power, access through prayer. First, we're going to talk about number one. Rebuilding begins with brokenness over our present state. When you read through the book of Nehemiah, right? And I imagine you've done that before. And uh, he hears that the the walls and the gates of Nehemiah are broken and and burnt down. And it says there in verse 4 that he sat down and wept and mourned for days. Now, you know, when we think about that, it's like that, that, that type of emotional attachment to walls and gates at first reading, it can seem a little strange to us, right? Uh, you know, I mean, burnt, broken walls and burnt gates aren't necessarily a good thing, but to be so emotionally, emotionally attached to them that you weep and mourn and fast about it, you know, that seems kind of over the top. But of course, if you think about it just a little bit, you realize what's really happening here. He's not weeping over the gates and the walls per se. He's weeping over what they represent. The walls and the gates represent security and blessing for the people of God, right? In ancient times, to be out in the open countryside without any walls or gates to around you to protect you, you were pretty much at the, uh, at the whim of whatever marauding band wanted to come and harass you and abuse you and steal from you or whatever. Okay, I mean, the ancient time, there was no nation state, there was no police force, okay, there was no uh, national guard, it was the wild, wild west, and you had to survive, and walls and gates in major cities represented security and safety, okay, and besides all that, there's also an immense symbolic, symbolic uh, meaning and uh, for cities. And this is, by the way, is not just true of ancient times, but it's also true of today. There are cities that, by and large, whether we like it or not, are representative of America. When people think of America, they would think of New York City. Why do you think, uh, why do you think the terrorists decided to attack New York City? And not Eastman? Well, I mean, I love Eastman, don't get me wrong, but New York seems to represent America, the Statue of Liberty and so on. You know, it has symbolic importance, a symbolic representation. And in the same way, in ancient times, cities represented entire peoples, right? When God in ancient times would, uh, would say that he is pronouncing judgment upon certain nations, he would often, he would often do so by pronouncing judgment upon their cities. Damascus, 
Tyre, Sidon, Ashkelon, Ash, Ashdod, Ekron, Sodom, Gomorrah. The cities represented the people. And so to destroy the people, the cities represented judgment on the people. And of course, the greatest example in the Bible of a significant city is Jerusalem itself. Jerusalem represented the very nation of Israel. God, if you go through the book of Deuteronomy over and over and over, God told Moses and through Moses told the Israelite people that when he brought them into the land and at an appropriate time, he would choose a place to make his name dwell there. And the place that he eventually would come to choose through the kingship of David was the city of Jerusalem. And so Jerusalem became the capital of Israel. It became where the temple would be built by Solomon and it would become the center of the nation. It would become the place of the true worship of the true God. It would represent the political and religious identity of the nation. Right? That's what Jerusalem meant. So, then, when Israel broke the covenant with God, which Moses essentially prophesied would happen, okay, when they repeatedly committed idolatry against God over centuries and centuries, what then would be the ultimate and climactic sign of God's judgment on the people of Israel? The destruction of Jerusalem. The destruction of Jerusalem. So the broken walls and burnt gates might not seem to be like a lot to weep over for us. But the judgment of God upon a rebellious and adulterous nation is a lot to weep over. That's why Nehemiah is crying. That's why he's mourning. That's why he's fasting. Because after all those years of exile... The gates are still burnt. The walls are still broken. And what does that, what does that represent? What does it mean? The continued disrepair of the city continues to signal the shame and disgrace of Israel. It continues to signal God's judgment upon them as a rebellious people. But it also means this. It also means that a powerful and dramatic statement that a new chapter is about to begin in the life of Israel would be the rebuilding of the walls and the restoring of the gates. Which is why they face so much opposition when they try to do it. Because for the gates to finally be rebuilt, the walls to finally be rebuilt would mean that something that God is turning away from wrath of his people and turning back to them in grace. And he's restoring them and doing something new. A new chapter can begin in the history of Israel with the rebuilding of the walls and the gates. So that's what we see in the book of Nehemiah. So this so don't miss don't miss when when you read the story of Nehemiah. Don't miss the big picture that this is this is God through a man saying that things are starting to change for the people. Now Nehemiah, it says, was the cupbearer to the king. Now the cupbearer was an extremely high office. 
okay, in the king's court. Um, you, you drank, you tasted the king's wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. I don't know how you'd like that job, but uh, that's the job that he had. But you can imagine then how high of an office that had to be, right? Because you were in constant contact with the king because the king ate. Well, I don't know how often he ate, but he ate a lot, I'm sure. And then you had to be profoundly trusted, right? Because if somebody could, you know, you know, assassinate the king, you'd have to go through this person. So a high, this extremely high official, okay, that's Nehemiah, all right? A very trusted person by the king, okay? So when he heard about the state of the city, what did he do? He mourned and wept and fasted. He broke it, he, he was broken over the continual sign of Israel's shame. And so what I want to point out here is that is that for Nehemiah the hearing that the walls were broken and that the gates were burnt was the first point of pain for him. It was the first point of pain for him that made him say Something has got to be done about this. Something's got to be done. You see, and you know, and I mean, we can just have frank conversation. Change is hard because change is painful. Change is hard because change is painful because change means familiar or it means familiar goes and new comes. You're giving something up. It's painful. Okay? It's painful. Change is hard because change is pain and pain is hard. But when Nehemiah saw the, the, the broken walls and the burnt gates, when he heard about them, the pain of the broken walls and the burnt gate made Nehemiah say something has to be done. And guess what? Nehemiah sacrificed a lot and went through a lot and put himself through a lot, being the, one of the high officials in the king's court. He, he just left all that to go to a bunch of people who didn't really show him a lot of respect. Okay? And he did all that because he knew that something needed to change. Right? And so I think there's an important principle for us here, and that is rebuilding must begin, like Nehemiah, it must begin with brokenness over the present state. It must begin with brokenness over the present state, and we've been talking about that. You will never make an effort to rebuild if you think everything is just fine the way that it is. You know, we have reached a blessed point in our church where I think we can say out loud what I think many of us were thinking, and that is that things are not fine just the way that they are. Not that things are bad, and, and, and that's the thing. That's what makes it hard, right? Because some people will say, you know, Pastor, everything's fine. You know, the, the church is fine. The music is fine. The preaching is okay. But everything else, everything else is just fine. Okay? There's no need to change. Well, you know, that would be fine. If all we existed for was to gather together once a week to sing and get preached at and go home, that would be perfectly fine. But we were made for more than that. We exist to make disciples who make disciples for the glory of Jesus because he's worthy. And the truth is, is that, 
you know, we're really not fine because for, since I've been here, as I've said, we've been bleeding out people slowly but surely. And we have to face the, we have to face the fact that unless God begins to bring another generation into this church 15 to 20 years from now, those doors will be locked here, wherever we are. So we have to think about the future. It's okay that we look at the state and say it's not okay. In fact, we, we, we need to be tired of being okay with not being okay. I think that's right. We have to be tired of being okay with not being okay. We should not be okay with not being okay. The problem is, is sometimes we just, we're okay. We're just okay with being okay. That's how most of us live our life. We're just okay with being okay. But it's not okay. And so I think with Nehemiah, we should mourn and fast and weep. And say, Lord, I know that there, there is more for us. I know that we can, I know that there are lost people out there who through our witness can be reached for you. But we have to feel the pain of that before we'll be willing to change. But when we, but when we come to the Lord, just like Nehemiah did, and say, Lord, this isn't okay. And I'm not going to be okay with it. And I want you, God, to use me to be the one to change. That's what Nehemiah did. When we do that, God shows up. And that's what he says over and over in the scripture here. Uh, Joel chapter 2, verse 12. It says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Here's another one. This is one of my favorite passages, Hosea 6. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. If we know, if we, let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. If we press on to know God, he will come to us. As the rains water the earth, what happens when the rains water the earth? Things begin to grow. If we turn to the Lord, he will come to us as the rain waters the earth. But it must begin with feeling the pain that leads to change. So number one, rebuilding begins with brokenness over our present state. And number two, rebuilding rests upon God's power access through prayer. Rebuilding rests upon God's power access through prayer. I'm going to read there. You can follow along with me in your Bibles. Verses 4 through 11, Nehemiah 1. It says, as soon as, 
As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Okay, so what I want to do, and if you've read through the book of Nehemiah before, you've certainly noticed this. But a prominent part of the book of Nehemiah is his prayers. Nehemiah was a praying man. And I think that's why God used him. And he records these prayers. And I think we can learn a lot from Nehemiah's prayer here. So I'm just going to point out a few things. Number one, the first thing that we want to notice about Nehemiah's prayer is the content of his prayer. It's very similar to Daniel's prayer in Daniel chapter 9, if you're familiar with that. Because what it is, is it's a prayer of repentance. Nehemiah is confessing his sin, and not just his sin, but the sins of the people before God. He is acknowledging that what has happened to them, the exile, was deserved. So he's not washing over his sins. He's not accusing God of being unjust or unfair. He's saying... This, we have done this. This is what has happened. What come upon us in the exile and in the destruction of Jerusalem, you were simply doing exactly what you said you would do when we were unfaithful to you. And he just owns it. And that's what we got to do. We just got to own ourselves, own our lives, own our failures. And so that's what we got to do. We got to own it. You know, and... And again, you know, I can, you know, I won't speak for everyone else, but I'll just speak for me. I got to own where I haven't loved people enough to tell them about Jesus. I got to own where I haven't loved people enough to get out of my comfort zone and to say, my comfort zone is not as important as them knowing Jesus. We got to own that. We got to own you know, it called, it, it called Israel an adulterous nation. That, that language is very, it's, 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 it's very dramatic and it's very important because Israel was conceived of as God's bride. And so idolatry is considered adult, adultery. She was an adulterous nation because she worshiped idols. And we got to own that too. 
We got to own where we have allowed idols into our lives as individuals and as a church. We got to own where we give the best of our time and attention to things other than God. Whether that is children or ball games or vacation or whatever. We've got to own where we've checked the church box on Sundays and went back to our first loves on Monday. We got to repent and confess and own our sins before God and say, God, have mercy upon us where we've put other things in front of you. God, have mercy on us where we have not sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, but set sought first the kingdom of Chad and my greatness or whatever it is. And only when we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness will everything else be added to us. We must repent. And that's what Nehemiah does. The second thing we learn from Nehemiah's prayer is that we must claim God's promises and cling to them as our only hope. Right? If you go back and read Deuteronomy... Moses, you know, he essentially prophesies that Israel is going to be unfaithful. And he tells them ahead of time. Remember, when they went into Israel, uh, when they entered the land, they were supposed to go, uh, I think it was Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal. I can't remember, but they had to go on these two mountains and they had to pronounce the blessings and the curses. If we remain faithful, God will pour out these blessings. But if we were unfaithful, here's all the curses that are going to happen. And Moses is essentially saying all those things are going to happen. And then when you read through the New, the Old Testament, you realize, hey, every single one of those things happen. The curses of God for breaking his covenant. Because they were idolatrous and stiff-necked. But at the same time, even before they entered the land, in the book of Deuteronomy, God made a promise. He said, and, and Nehemiah quotes it. He says, if you return to me, even after the exile, if you return to me, and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. So no. So notice what Nehemiah didn't do. Nehemiah didn't say, hey God, look at us. We really got our act together. You should bring us back to the land. That's not what he says. He knew that he had no basis on which to plead God's favor or God's mercy. He didn't have it. There was none. The only basis he had to plead with God was on the basis of God's promise. Because God promised that he would restore them when they turned back to him. We have no basis to plead for anything except on the promises of God. Not for my sake, not for my sake, but for his sake. I believe that we have promises that we can plead before God. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. God will build his church, but he won't do it for our sake. He'll do it for his sake. And so... And so if we just if we just if we just want to survive, if we just want our glory, this ain't going to work. But if we really want God's name to be exalted in Dodge County. 
If we really want to see the name of Jesus Christ lifted high in our families and in our neighborhoods and, and in our workplace, in our community, God will do it. He will do it. Because he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we don't plead, so we don't plead for this on any presumed goodness that we have because there is none. We plead on the promises of God. For your sake, God, do this. And the third thing that we learn from Nehemiah's prayer is that success, the success of our rebuilding efforts ultimately depends not on us, but on God. It ultimately depends not on us, but on God. Nehemiah in verse 11 said, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. That's a good phrase right there. And give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man now I was cupbearer to the king. So notice here. So notice. More, <laughs> more people know more about Nehemiah than they do about this Persian king. That's interesting, isn't it? Because the king probably thought he was great, but not realizing that he, he, went, he thought he was probably the center of the Persian story, and he didn't realize that he... He was just kind of a, a, a side character in God's story. So Nehemiah, Nehemiah is there and he's cupbearer to the king. Okay? And so he, now, to be fair, he does, you know, he can't just, you know, he can't just like walk off his job, okay? He's one of the highest officials in the kingdom, okay? So he needs the king's permission and, of course, you know, Nehemiah is very, you know, gracious and and, under, and and very respectful towards his master there, the king. But he understands, but he but Nehemiah also understands this, that he serves a king that is greater than the king of Persia. And so that's the real king, that's the real king that has the power here. And so, in other words, if God wants Nehemiah to go build this wall... Nehemiah is going to go build that wall. So we must, so the success of our rebuilding efforts depend ultimately not on us, but on God. So what does he do? He prays to God, to the King of Kings, and he says, Lord, Lord, please grant me success and mercy in the sight of this man. So he needed approval from Artaxerxes to go on this mission. But to get that approval was not in Nehemiah's power. It was only in God's power. And it was in God's power because the Bible says that. Proverbs 21 verse 1. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. God, Artaxerxes isn't in charge. God's in charge. God is sovereign over the hearts of men. God is sovereign over the world. God is sovereign over history. God is sovereign over this church. And the only way we'll see it rebuilt is if God wants it rebuilt. And if God wants it rebuilt, 
Nothing's going to stop it. Which is why I said in that five-page document, which everybody held up and said that they would read very carefully, and I'm sure you did, the last two lines of that document said, if God is not in this, this will fail. If God is in this, this can't fail. Everything we try to do will fail if God's not in it, if God's not for it, which is why we must pray. And so, you know, I preached a sermon a couple back uh, about prayer specifically, and it's just, it's going gonna, it's gonna to keep coming up because we can't stop praying. And so, the, so especially everyone, especially the people who came up to me after that service a few weeks ago and said, I'm going to be praying. I'm going to be a watchman on the wall for our church. This is your time to shine because the work is just beginning. There's going to be a lot of work to do. But I know that he can do it. And so if you love this church and you love these people and you love your children and your grandchildren and your neighbors across the street and your co-workers at work, then you need to be on your knees praying to God that he would begin to work wonders in our church. Because without God, it's going to be a waste of time. You know, a while back, quite some time ago now, I preached a series through this through the book called uh, Praying Life by Paul Miller. And he, he shares a story in that book where he talks about helplessness and he talks about he was running this, his prayer ministry, okay, where he teaches people to pray and teaches churches how to, 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 to incorporate prayer and create a culture of prayer in their churches. And so he was running, he was running this prayer ministry. And then one day he realized that he did not regularly pray for his prayer ministry. Why? He says, because I wasn't helpless. Because I was still doing what Paul could do. And so as we, as we walk on this journey, I'm dead serious. We got to start praying. And I'm dead serious too. The devil is going to do everything he possibly can to keep you from praying. That's the reason why we don't pray like we should already. So it's going to keep coming up and I'm just going to keep saying it. Make prayer for your life, for your family, for this church, a discipline in your life. There's, I'm just going to say, I mean, this is not legalism. This is gospel. This is life or death. You need to be praying every day for your life, for your soul, for your family, for your church. There's no excuse. Make a prayer room. Set an alarm on your phone. Stick 500 sticky notes in your car, in your house, on your table, on your refrigerator. Because Lord knows we go to the refrigerator before we get on our knees. Put sticky notes. Do whatever do you, you know, we, we got magical things now that can sing to us when we need to be reminded of something. You got things within your power to, to create a habit in your life to pray. You just got to do it. 
We must pray because Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Rebuilding begins with brokenness of our present state. Number two, rebuilding begins, rests, rebuilding rests upon God's power, access through prayer. The heart of a king is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. God can do anything he wants to do. We just got to be helpless enough to see him do it. I'm going to close this morning. We've talked about Nehemiah. We've talked about brokenness. We've talked about prayer. We're asking God to do great things for our church. But the greatest thing that he could do for anybody in this room this morning, if you don't know Jesus, is he could tear out your old heart and put in a new one and rebuild your life from the inside out. And there's lots of people in this room, if that's you, they could tell you exactly what God did for them. And I could tell you what God did for me. So the most important decision that could be made is if you don't know Christ, you can trust in him today. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come this morning and we acknowledge our utter helplessness apart from you. God, we can do nothing. And as we think about the future and we think about what's ahead, Lord, we just and think about all the things that are, that are necessary and will need to be done. We just it's just overwhelming, God. We can't, but you can. Lord, in fact, when we think about how you created the universe with a word, that you spoke all things into existence, that you took a handful of dust, God, and made an image bearer of God Almighty, and that we're his children, and that through Jesus Christ you have forgiven us of all of our sins and given us an inheritance, and, and, and that we will reign with him who has a name that is above every name, then, Lord, what we're doing really is a small thing for you. But we can't do it. Only you can. And so, Lord, if you would lift up your pinky finger. Lord. You can make us a holy, faithful, vibrant, courageous, bold church for you. And so, God, I pray that you would do it. I pray that you would take us, God, where we cannot take ourselves. You're the good shepherd. Lord, and... We're, we are sheep, God. And so we, we look to your rod, we look to your staff, and we look at your feet, and we just say, just we don't even know where we're going, God, but we just pray that you will walk ahead of us and we'll just follow you. That's all we know to do. So help us, God, today to follow you. Take us to green pastures, God. Take us to still waters. We need you. And it's in Christ's name we pray.